This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. Listen up, software engineers. When was the last time you proposed a product change that was really listened to? How often does your code shift to production? Same day, within minutes? When was the last time you actually wanted to go to work? At Ultimate Software, this could be your new normal. And with offices in Florida, Georgia, and California, what are you waiting for? Visit ultimatesoftware.com careers today and start making a difference tomorrow. Ultimate Software. People first. Welcome, everyone, to uh, Software Engineering Radio today. Uh, my name's Kim Carter. I'll be uh, your host for the day. Today we've got Scott Piper. Scott has a decade of experience in cybersecurity, having previously worked at the NSA as a developer for commercial security products and as the director of security for a startup. He now focuses on improving the security of AWS environments as an independent consultant. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. We've had shows on the modern cloud-based platform in 2014 with Adam Cockcroft, uh, that was show number 216, and we've had a show on Docker security with uh, Diego Monica, that was show number 290. Uh, there's some relevant articles from IEEE Computer Society on today's topic, cloud security and security challenges in cloud. Today we're going to be discussing cloud security. I'm just going to start off with some basic questions. When moving to the cloud, our servers, compute, storage, and many other physical aspects have now become abstract concepts. As a software engineer, what thoughts do you have on how we need to change our approach to security when moving to the cloud? Uh, a lot of it, honestly, is it's a lot of the same concepts, but you just have to learn how to apply them slightly differently. Um, so, so one of the things that AWS and other cloud providers talk about is kind of the shared responsibility model. And so what you have to understand going in is is there are some things that your cloud provider will take care of for you and there's some things that, that you still need to take care of for yourself or, or need to focus more on um, and so some examples of that is you know you could use different types of uh, services uh, that uh, for example like load balancing services might do SSL termination or something like that for you so you're not gonna have to worry about you know updating S, uh, open SSL on those different services however you still need to make sure that any end points that you have behind those, you know, that you still look for and, and take care of any type of uh, SQL injection or cross-site scripting or other types of issues like that. Uh, so, so it's just kind of understanding where your responsibilities lie and, and where the cloud vendor's responsibilities lie. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you explain what the shared responsibility model is and how it's uh, supposed to work and uh, what sort of misconceptions are around it? Yeah, so so it basically just means that that there are, there's going to be some things. For example, you know the the physical security of the environment. You know you don't have to you you are not going to be responsible for trying to take any precautions to try and protect the you know actual physical data centers of your cloud provider. However, there you know the software that gets installed onto the the instances that that provider provides to you, you still have to take care of that yourself. And so so you have to understand for the different services that you're using from them where your responsibilities uh, end and, and where theirs begin. And so, you know, it becomes just important to, to try and 
make make note of that as as you're going through and setting things up and and determining how much time you're going to end up spending in different areas. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of the shared responsibility model, what aspects of security is the CSP or a cloud service provider actually responsible for? Uh, again, it's it's going to depend on the different services that you're using. So, you know, for example, um, if you're using, uh, you know, AWS's EC2 um, service, that's going to be basically providing you with a VM instance that you can install software on. Um, and so you're going to be responsible for uh updating the operating system on there and updating any of the software that you're running on there. But if you're using something like AWS Lambda, um, that's going to be a service that uh, all you're going to be doing is running code on there. So that's going to be and so in that case, you're not going to be responsible for the operating system um, or updating you know, some of the libraries that happen behind the scenes, but the libraries that you put on there yourself or the code that you put on there yourself, you're going to have to make sure that you update that. Hmm. So I guess due to the scale of the size of uh, most of the uh, large CSPs, um, and like they generally have uh, their own security teams and that sort of thing, uh, they do actually take care of a lot of stuff that we used to have to take care of ourselves, right, before the migration to the cloud. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I mean, there, there, there's a ton of different service offerings that they're providing, and, and like I said, you know, one of the biggest ones that, that's just going to be across the board for all the different services that, that you're using is just going to be that that physical security that you're not going to have to worry about. Um, so, you know, having a data center and, and having you know potentially guards manning it, you know, twenty four seven and video surveillance around it, and, and the processes and procedures for uh, destroying hard drives that have come to end of life and things like that. You know, you're cloud service provider is going to take care of those for you. But then when it comes to things like patching and upgrading, um, there's kind of a give and take and you have to you have to realize which services you're using is going to be dependent on, on which of those uh, responsibilities you have. So what do you see as the highest risks in handing everything over uh, to CSPs? I think the kind of the biggest danger is just the realization that that in your historic uh, data centers that you controlled and maintained yourself, one you potentially had more visibility into into what happened there, and, and you had more ability to to set the your own rules for yourself. Um, whereas when you move to a cloud service provider, you know they're setting all of those rules for you, and, and in some cases, you know they they might not be the same rules or as good rules as you would have liked. However, for the most part, you know a a lot of the rules that they've set and, and uh, practices and procedures that they're following are going to be at a higher level than you would be able to maintain yourself. And so, so that's you know one of, one of the big things. The, another big issue is just that historically in your own data center, if something was to be exposed publicly to the internet, that was probably going to require you know firewall changes, which might mean someone actually having to physically go to the to a data center and potentially plug things in, actual you know physically manually plug things in between boxes in order to make that happen, or at least you know physically go to that data center in order to log into the console and make those changes. Changes. And, and so that's that's kind of the biggest difference is now with the cloud, you know, things can get exposed publicly just with a click of the button. It's very simple. It's very easy. And so, you know, with with that ease comes those problems as well. And that you can accidentally make these changes, you know, or it becomes so easy that, you know, someone that that doesn't understand what they're doing could potentially make those things publicly accessible. And so as an example of this, we, we've seen that, you know, every week a new company comes 
comes out that's been a victim of um, an S3 bucket on Amazon that's been publicly exposed because there there's a single button that you click on there just to say make this publicly you know world accessible and, and it becomes uh, available to everybody yeah 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 I think your project uh, flaws is a great example of um, how developers and engineers can actually get better at doing this stuff as well which we'll discuss um, uh, closer um, toward the um, end of the show um, yeah so here's what we're trying to protect as software engineers and the organizations we work uh, for changed much from the exodus of on-premise to the cloud and if so how so I wouldn't say that that, that it's been so much a change of on-premise to the cloud, but just a change as to how kind of everybody is approaching a, a lot of software development and, and operations these days, and, and specifically that they're becoming more blended. And part of that is due to the cloud making that easier because now you can, uh, you know, you can acquire servers um, with clicks of the button or with just scripting it and, and writing code to accomplish that. Um, so so that becomes, it becomes a lot more blended with the, you know, DevOps movement that happening and uh, you know a lot of the reason why the DevOps movement has happened has been because you know people's time has been freed up in order to accomplish this blend of activities as opposed to having to be siloed into specific skills. Yeah yeah so we're still trying to protect our own customer data and that sort of thing right um, so that hasn't really changed uh, with the move has it? No, I mean, a lot of their, you know, your same goals and a lot of your same practices, you know, also apply to the cloud in different ways. Just kind of the, the biggest things around it have, have really just been, you know, now you can use things like, you know, Terraform cloud formation or, or other type of scripting technologies in order to bring up um, new instances, change firewall settings and, and be able to make those changes via simple scripts and simple CLIs. So how do we need to adjust our thinking so that our security focus is in the right areas and, and how should our focus have changed? I think it, it mostly becomes, you know, now that, now that there aren't certain things that you need to worry about because of the shared responsibility model, that frees you up in order to, you know, kind of view things, to be able to do different tasks. Uh, additionally, you're going to have... APIs that give you insight into things. So whereas with, you know, physical data centers, you know, someone actually might have had to follow cables around in order to figure out what's plugged into what and what can actually communicate with what. Whereas with in the cloud environment, there's API calls that you can make that can tell you what things are actually able to talk to what. And so because of that, that that then enables you to create new tools and create scanners that can do this. So whereas previously, you know, it, it might have only been a task that you would um, go about doing you know, quarterly or something like that to try and, you know, do a physical assessment of some sort of uh, an understanding what was connected to what. Now you can do these things hourly or, or every minute or, you know, be able to get alerts when any of these changes are made. Um, so so that's kind of the, the biggest difference there is I think that, that it, it's able to move you forward by enabling you to accomplish some of these things that you couldn't accomplish previously. What are the benefits of cloud computing like what are our assets we need to uh, be considering when threat modeling uh, the cloud and and the suitability of various providers? A lot of it, a lot of it becomes uh, pretty similar uh, as you had been doing in, in your data centers. Uh, yeah, so I'm thinking um, things like productivity, competitive advantage, um, control, customer data, reputation, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. With I mean. A lot of these are all just going to be gains, I think, a lot of benefits there. Uh, so, you know, your, your productivity increases 
you know, infinitely because now you don't have to worry about, you know, trying to uh, acquire new systems or make sure your HVAC system is going to be able to work with this environment. Uh, you know, you're, you're able to just acquire new systems and, and additionally, you're able to leverage services that are provided for you. So, for example, um, some of these cloud providers provide an, an elastic search, uh, managed elastic search cluster for you. And so you no longer have to try and maintain that yourself. You know, they also provide a lot of uh, database capabilities capabilities for you for, for performing snapshots or performing backups of the data. So, so again, you know, these things are taken care of for you. Cool. So um, we're just going to move into a, um, a risks and a countermeasures uh, section. I often I receive questions from software engineers like, as a software engineer, do I really care about network security? And network security used to be uh, slightly less of an issue for software en engineers than it is now. Like, uh, network security used to be primarily are the network administrator's responsibility. And now that our infrastructure and our networks are exposed by code with infrastructure and configuration management tools such as Terraform, um, Ansible, Docker, and others, what are your thoughts around the responsibility of network security now falling in the laps of software engineers? Uh, I think that that it becomes blended a lot of times now, you know, that, that people have to uh, have both of those skill sets. Um, and, and so... You, you can't really be as siloed in, into one of those um, categories as you used to be. And so you have to understand, you know, what are the impacts and, and how to use some of these different tools uh, so that you can, you know, basically be able to move faster and accomplish those different things that the, the cloud enables you to do. Um, so. An example of that is, you know, being able to stand up new services can be done, you know, much faster in a cloud environment, um, whereas, you know, previously uh, you had to basically talk with your network engineer and make sure that different ports and services um, could be opened and, you know, potentially you had to work around restrictions and limitations of, uh, you know, some of those devices that you might have already had in your environment um, and, and, you know, reorganize, you know, uh, some of your uh, subnets and things like that, uh, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Whereas now that can be done much faster, um, and and really you're not going to be as limited as you were um, a lot of times with with your historical environments. Yeah, we also had a show uh, with James Turnbull um, around Terraform. Uh, that was show number uh, two eighty nine. I work a lot with AWS, which uh, provides a security abstraction model. Uh, we can create objects like uh, VPCs, uh, security groups and roles, ingress and egress rules, access control lists, security uh, roles attached to instances, roles consisting of uh, sets of profiles, etc. Uh, then we have another abstraction layer uh, with tools such as Terraform, which allow us to build these resources uh, declaratively rather than imperatively. Uh, this allows us to uh, conceptualise and build what we I want without understanding low-level constructs uh, such as firewalls, IB tables, for example, uh, how to configure uh, Cisco appliances and those sorts of things, and where to put these in our network topo topology. Uh, this seems to dumb the skill set down a little bit of software engineers. It also allows our programmers to become a network engineers in a sense. Uh, do you see this as a step forward or a step backwards or potentially both, and how so? You know, I, I see it as, as a step forward uh, just because, you know, now you're not going to have, you know, some of the same, uh, you know, limitations that, that you had previously um, and, and some of the, I guess, inefficiencies that, that you had previously, whereas, you know, 
you might have had to communicate with a whole lot of different people and you know it was uh, you know potentially on what you're trying to accomplish uh, it could have been you know big ordeals in uh, in your organization to try and open up different ports for different reasons you know you were limited and perhaps the number of IP addresses that you had that were a publicly accessible and so now now a lot of those uh, restrictions are removed from you so that you can you can really accomplish a lot more a lot faster um, it, it does present dangers though that you know because you're, you are moving faster that, that now uh, you know it, it does it does open up a lot of those new risks to you though yep now the way I said is, is we're actually leave are leaving some of these um, deep specialities up to uh, the security teams and um, and networking teams of the CSP, so uh, we're not having to think about them so much. But yeah, like you say, they does open up new risks and uh, potentially new holes in the uh, a lack of understanding um, around the engineers. Correct. Yeah. So as customers of uh, the cloud, we have little visibility of the internal workings or implementations of the infrastructural abstractions provided to us. Trust is a core concept that we are yielding to our providers. All software has bugs, right? So how can we be sure that our chosen CSP is fixing their bugs quickly and not exposing us to undue risk? Yeah, so that that is one of the dangers um, with cloud environments. But but I I also view it as you know just kind of a risk and danger that you have with with any service that you're using. So you might imagine if you're using uh, you know the Windows operating system as your base operating system. In that case, you're relying on Microsoft to you know maintain patches for that system. And, and so in, in kind of the same way, uh, you know, your your cloud provider, you're, you're relying on them to be patching uh, potentially operating systems that they're running for you or potentially some of the other services that you're running for you. Um, so, you so you always do have those risks to some degree. And, and you know, additionally, you know, it, Previously, you might have been using some type of data center where you were leasing space somewhere, you were lease, uh, leasing racks from them. Um, so again, you, you have kind of those, uh, you know, potential uh, lack of visibility into some of the, the actions they're doing there for you. Do you have any sort of um, concrete examples around um, how we can uh, get more visibility into uh, the internal infrastructure or whether it even matters? I mean, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, a lot of the cloud providers they, they do a very um, good job of trying to hide that from you, um, and so so it becomes you know difficult or impossible to, to know what's happening underneath those abstraction layers that, that you can't see. Uh, you know, in some ways you might be able to try and and uh, you know try and leak some of that information to yourself, uh, but it it's really you know it's really not something that you should rely on. Basically, they've provided that abstraction to you and they can change what's happening underneath at any time. And so because of that, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for you to try and understand what's there if it potentially might change un underneath you. As long as you're still getting the same service and as long as you're still able to use those abstraction layers and make kind of your core base assumptions about what's happening underneath, you know, you don't really need to worry about what's happening, um, you know, at, at you know, potentially like a network layer or, you know, at a lower operating system layer or something than, than what they've provided and exposed to you. Yeah, the way I think about it is that we're trusting on their deep securities, so their deep specialities in security. And what it does is it actually moves our own focus of our development teams to application security more so. Would that be your sort of take on it? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, previously, whereas you might have needed to be an expert in you know all sorts of different things, and you needed to make sure that you know you were maintaining patches of firmware and things like that, uh, that that now you know that that relieves some of that burden from you. 
a catastrophic data loss more of an issue in the cloud than it was on-prem due to the CSB customers just believing that the CSBs will take care of it and occasionally failing? You know, there there have been a lot of, you know, news reports of, of these different uh, situations in which, uh, you know, people have exposed data that they shouldn't, and they happen to have been using different cloud providers. And, and I'm not sure, and, and I don't think it's entirely due to the cloud providers. You know, in, in some cases, you know, some of the uh, user interfaces that they've had have been a little bit more confusing. They've made a couple things, you know, easier to do than they should have done previously. However, it, it's not, you know, a direct failing of them in the sense that, you know, they didn't, it wasn't the cloud provider that opened up this access. You know, it, it was the uh, the customer that opened up, you know, some of this different access. However, you know, it, it is kind of on the cloud provider to make, you know, those those menus uh, as understandable as possible so that the, you know, the customer understands uh, the implications better of what they're doing. And I don't think that that's probably always been the case that you know, the, the customers haven't really realized that, you know, for example, that they're opening an S3 bucket to the world and exposing it to everybody. Um, you know, it, it, one, of the, one of the prime examples of this is AWS, when you when you open up one of these S3 buckets, uh, one of your options is you can expose it to everybody or you can expose it to authenticated users. And so that was the language that AWS used was they said authenticated users. And a lot of people took that to mean that it was you know users of their own AWS account that they were opening this up to. And so people within their own company, what they didn't realize is that authenticated users to AWS means anybody in AWS that is authenticated. So so at any other company or any other AWS account, as long as they had authenticated in, they could access these S3 buckets. And so that was a big failing of one of the cloud service providers in, in providing in, an understandable menu to them. Yeah, that's an interesting one because I think if I saw that, um, then I'd, um, I would immediately be thinking about defense and depth and I'd be thinking, I'd be looking at that and my first thoughts would be uh, just what you said there. And then uh, there has to be another step in order to um, provide extra authentication to that specific bucket. Exactly. And I mean, one, you know, there are a lot of tools now that can help with, you know, auditing, for example, you know, some of these misconfigurations like publicly exposed S3 buckets, um, which, you know, these tools, they they can't, they can't alert you and say this is, you know, absolutely critical. This is a thing you need to fix because there are obviously, you know, reasons why you would um, open up an S3 bucket to be publicly exposed like that. For example, a lot of websites are hosted as S3 buckets. Uh, My own personal website for my company is hosted as an S3 bucket. Um, and so you can't, you know, immediately assume that just because it's public that it's bad. You know, there are, there are legitimate reasons for doing it. But then things that you can do to try and, you know, implement defense in depth there is you can, you know, potentially encrypt that information that you're storing there. So that even if it was misconfigured such that this was a public publicly exposed, that an attacker or anybody else that came across that data would only have access to encrypted data. And so, you know, th- those are some of the precautions that you can try and take. Have you got some examples of how we can um, like provide that sort of encryption? Some of the different service providers themselves, they'll you know provide uh, different capabilities for performing that encryption for you. Um, so you know AWS with its S3 buckets, you know it can it can accomplish some of that for you. However, there's always you know the the option that you could take to encrypt it yourself with um, you know some type of other tool or, or, or free third party tool that exists out there. Um, so so that that's kind of one of the uh, benefits and frustrations of the cloud is that there's always going to be many of these different options for you to take. You know, you can 
you can either go all in and uh, you know continuously use more and more of the different cloud um, service providers offerings which you know has the you know kind of uh, you know, difficulty or frustration that, that it's continuously locking you into that cloud provider, making it more and more difficult for you to, to switch cloud providers or, you know, increases the risk that if anything were to ever happen to that cloud provider, you know, that that could be, uh, you know, more of a, a greater impact to your business if you're heavily locked into them. Um, and for example, that your cloud provider goes bankrupt or, or some other type of incident happens to them, you know, or you could go the other route of just, you know, using all of your own tools and using the bare minimum of what the cloud service provider offers. Um, and so that reduces that lock-in, but at the same time, it, it also means that you're not going to be able to, you know, move as efficiently um, as you would if you were to use all the different cloud service providers' offerings. Yeah, it's a real balancing act, isn't it? I mean, I mean, what are some of the things that we actually have to weigh up there? I, I mean, you know, as an example, I mentioned previously, like the Elasticsearch clusters, um, you know, there, there are offerings for that from some of the service providers. And, and so, you know, a, again, another um, kind of frustration that you can run into is if you're using one of those services, you really become more and more dependent on that cloud service provider and how they're running it for you. There, there might be ways in which they will be unwilling to configure it that you might be able to configure it yourself. You might not have access to certain logs or uh, you know, a visibility into resource usage that you would have otherwise if you were running it yourself. And so those are some of the uh, you know, difficulties that you can run into. But, but at this point in time, I mean, there, there's you know, all sorts of different cloud service offerings. AWS just had their big conference of the year called reInvent in which they announced a, a number of new service offerings. Um, and so it, it, it becomes very difficult even to just keep track of what they're what all they're providing. Um, you know, I think a lot of people when they think of the cloud, you know, all they're thinking of is that basically they can run some VM up there. That that that's what is you know being granted to you is the ability to SSH into a system and install your you know your software on there. But nowadays there there's a whole variety of you know different service offerings that exist in, in addition to you know different uh, queuing software, different database software that's all being managed and run for you if you want to. So I want to talk um, a little bit about how we can evaluate uh, if using any given CSP is going to provide a high enough level of security for us and our customers. So we're going to discuss techniques uh, we can use to compare different CSPs offerings and whether or not they fit uh, for our purpose. So feel free to mention any that you think um, of as we work through uh, the following list. What are your thoughts on keeping signed audit logs on UIs and APIs? I, I mean, I leverage those heavily in in a lot of the detections and monitoring that I do, just because you know you can see not only not only does it give you the insight into what has historically happened in your environment um, on purpose from from your own employees when you know perhaps they were uh, starting up new instances, and so you know th this can be helpful to the billing department to understand you know who was running these new instances and, and you know gives insight into when those happened and, and you know you. You can kind of correlate that back to why that happened um, to some degree, but but then you know it, it also is very important for being able to detect you know potentially attackers in your environment, um, and so th this is where you know logging becomes very important is seeing you know some of those access denied. So not only being able to see what did happen in your environment, but also being able to see what was attempted to have happen in your environment, and so that's that's where a lot of that logging can also be useful. For example, if you know you've implemented least privileges across your 
computer, different users that you have in your environment, and someone started trying to use, you know, services or access resources they didn't have permission to, you know, that could be, there could be legitimate reasons for that, but it also could be because perhaps, you know, the, the credentials of that employee um, were compromised and an attacker was trying to look around and investigate inside your environment. Yeah, yeah. There's quite a few tools that can help us there as well, and we're just going to talk a little about those um, uh, closer to the end of the show. So, um, so AWS has um, CloudTrail, right? Um, I guess that's uh, what you would primarily use for um, uh, audit logs. Correct. Yeah. So. AWS has a CloudTrail, which is going to record all the different API calls, and, and it gives you information about uh, the action that was taken. For example, um, you know, it's trying to spin up a new EC2 instance or creating a new S3 bucket, um, and it, it tells you who did it, tells you when, tells you, you know, whether or not they had multi-factor authentication um, when they were trying to perform this action, but. But it also has some limitations, and so some of those, for example, is it doesn't give you insight into the the data level actions that occur. So as an example, you could see that a new S3 bucket was created, but you could not see what data was read from that bucket or written to that bucket. AWS has recently made a, you know an option for you to get some insight into that, but historically that, that's not been visible to you. Additionally, you could see that a new uh, EC2 instance was created, uh, but you could not see, you know, who SSH'd into that instance. You could not see, you know, any of your, uh, you know, logs from your different services that were running on that instance. Um, so it doesn't give you that type of visibility. Uh, additionally, CloudTrail has always had a 15-minute delay to, to the recordings of the logs that it does, which means that you can never have true real-time, you know, recording or, or monitoring, alerting, and, you know, potentially remediation of things as they happen. You know, you, you always have the situation where an attacker, if they started doing an attack of any sort, they had 15 minutes where they knew that they would, <laughs> that, that the defenders would be completely blind to any of that attack. Um, AWS has recently kind of uh, made some changes via what's called CloudWatch logs, um, where you can get some insight into some of the CloudTrail data, uh, but you still don't get all the insight into what What's happening with that CloudTrail data? You still have to wait that 15 minutes to see um, the logs when they appear in your S3 bucket, which is where they're recorded to. Security is everyone's problem to solve and responsibility to understand. At the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, we look at how an understanding of threat and risk can help teams to think broadly about security issues and solutions. Join us in New York, February 25th through 28th. Visit softwarearchitecturecon.com to register and save 20% by using code SER. Yeah, so so for finer grain things like you said, who is actually SSHing into your um, a VM or whatever else, you know, like basically just finer grained events. Uh, what do we use for that? Um, do we have to um, set something up on the actual machine? Uh, yeah, so so on if it if it is for you know monitoring SSH uh, logins, you're going to have to uh, set something up um, on that system to record that, and so. AWS, for example, they, they do provide an agent that you could run on that system. However, you could also, you know, run whatever other um, agent you have out there, whether it's, uh, you know, Logstash or, uh, you know, Monitor some other, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, something exactly. Like monitor, yeah. Any, any other type of monitoring um, solution you, you could set up there. But, but again, you know, it's going to be a thing that you're going to have to know that this is where a limitation of AWS's responsibilities, you know, changes. Whereas this is a thing that is happening on the surface itself. And therefore, you know, that's going to be your responsibility to do that monitoring. 
So how many CSPs are encrypting all uh, comms between their servers and, and their other components within their data centers and also uh, with their service providers? Can you think of any? So, so that that is one of the concerns, as you mentioned earlier, about you know those layers of abstractions, where where I I don't think the different service providers have said you know, or at least not given specifics in terms of you know where all they're doing that in, that potential encryption. You know, are they doing it you know within the data center between you know different machines? Are they doing it you know between different regions that they have? Uh, you know, so so as an example, like AWS has the concept of availability zones where. You have uh, U.S. East One basically en- encompasses more or less the the entire U.S. Eastern Seaboard, so you don't know, you know, between the different cities, is that data being encrypted? I don't think they've they've ever made those claims, or you know, you'd have to try and dig through a lot of documentation mm. to try and find that out. Yeah, yeah. So, what are your thoughts on how we can actually improve that and potentially um, safeguard ourselves from eavesdropping and that sort of thing? Yeah, so so again, you know, this is a thing where you could set it up yourself, where you could set up, uh, you know, mutual TLS authentication between, uh, you know, all of your different services. Uh, there. There, there are you know some some areas uh, between these different cloud service providers that you can hopefully make some assumptions. For example, specifically within you know what's called uh, your VPCs, um, that that's going to be hopefully encrypted between there. Um, but but again, you know. It depends on how much you really trust that the cloud service provider is really accomplishing all of that for you. Yeah. So, um, so between the likes of our serverless technologies and that, I mean, do we have any show of <laughs> of uh, providing encryption? I, I again, I mean, I think the the only uh, the the only thing that we we do know is that so far. I, I haven't heard publicly about anybody, you know, exploiting that in any way, um, and and hope and I would imagine that that would be, you know, a big news event if you did find out that, you know, someone was able to to sniff some of that traffic and and use it in, uh, you know, different ways, or if they were to leapfrog between boxes, um, you know, that that's one of the biggest threats. Uh, you know, I, I read I read a paper from from a cyber insurance um, company once that was, you know, just discussing like what what do they view as kind of the the hurricane level events in cyber insurance, and, and one of the things they talk about was the hypervisor escape. That would allow them. That would allow an attacker to jump from uh, different instances within a cloud service provider. Uh, you know, whereas you know you might be one customer with your own instances, and then suddenly an attacker is able to go through the cloud service provider in order to get access to your instances there. Uh, you know, that that's one of the biggest scares for a lot of people. Are CSPs providing um, customers access to infrastructural logs at all? And what does that access look like? If so, and uh, how much is filtered before we get our hands on them? Uh, again, you know, you have access to the logs about, you know, the infrastructure that you're creating for yourself in terms of, you know, instances you stand up or changes that you're making to the firewalls yourself. Um, but you're only getting access access to that level of information. You know, you don't get access to any time a new rack is put into a data center somewhere in AWS's environment. You don't get access to, you know, whenever new customers or anything like that is, you know, going to get put next to you, uh, you know, on, you know, the same, potentially the same system. As you, you know, just running in different VMs on that same system, you won't ever get access to any of that information. Yeah. So, so do you have any idea of um, how much is actually getting filtered out before we get our hands on them? 
I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's really, it really just comes down to looking and seeing like what information they're providing to you, which is again, you know, just the actions that you're taking and, you know, just making assumptions that there's a lot of other things happening behind the scenes. But, but again, hopefully like none of those things are, are going to impact you. Hopefully they, they've made the precautions necessary so that, you know, if any of those changes do happen behind the scenes that, that they aren't going to impact you. Um, you know, you do periodically have these events where, uh, you know, AWS makes or, you know, different cloud service providers make mistakes in, you know, potentially uh, configuration changes that they're making or code updates that they make. And, you know, it ends up, you know, accidentally shutting down whole regions or shutting down, you know, availability zones in different ways. And, and again, a lot of them are pretty bad about updating customers in any way about that. You really, you really only find out about it when, you know, something goes wrong and, uh, you know, you're wondering why it happens and you, you potentially check a status page or something like that. And you find out that, you know, that that it's gone down. Um, you know, some of the cloud service providers have been pretty bad about updating their own um, status pages, though. So you know, you you've had an incident a number of months ago where you know S3 went down in US East one for for everybody, and uh, AWS never updated their status page for it, and everybody's like, uh, it shows green, but clearly it is broken for everybody <laughs> right now. So, yeah. so you do have those issues. What happens with our data uh, when we terminate our accounts uh, with our provider or, or migrate uh, to other providers? So the data uh, behind the scenes on um, on most of the cloud service providers should all be zeroed out um, immediately after after you terminate instances. Uh, there there had in the early days of cloud um, they hadn't been zeroing out this information and there was you know some ghosting of different sorts of some of the prior customers' data. Um, for for there was one cloud service provider that that was unfortunately um, not taking that precaution. Um, but but nowadays they they should all be zeroing out that information. Um, additionally, like I said earlier, with uh, you know physical hard drives and things like that, um, once those hard drives come to an end of life, you know they, they have a process of destroying those before they even leave the data centers. So, are they zeroing out like um, a sections of the disks or the entire disk? It hopefully should be all of the useful data on there, but but I don't I don't know you know the specifics of how they're accomplishing it. Um, you know, in, in theory, this is a this is a place where we just have to put place our trust on them that they are zeroing out all the information. I guess different uh, customs will be sharing disks, right? Correct. Yeah. So I mean, once once you start up an instance, you know, you would. It's very unlikely that you know you are the first person to, to be running on that hardware. Uh, chances are another customer has been there before you, and another customer will be there after you. Yeah, so it, it'll be interesting to know whether they're actually zeroing out just your stuff, or whether they're not zeroing it out at all until um, all customers are off that particular disk. Yeah. <laughs> Do we know who can view the data we store in the cloud? Uh, CSP employees. And what checks and controls uh, do the major CSPs have in place to make sure that this data cannot be read or exfiltrated? Yeah, so so again, this is a this is an area where um, I, I think most of the most of the cloud providers will state you know that they're not giving access to um, their employees of any sort, you know, being able to see any type of visibility. However, you know. I, I would be surprised if they're not being able to see some, you know, logging information, specifically things that that as data is leaving your environment, um, you know, for example, 
uh, AWS will alert you if your systems start port scanning other systems out there on the internet. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll tell you that one of your uh, systems is potentially compromised, so they'll try and alert you of that. And, and you know, they're, they're doing that, you know, not only because it's, it's nice of them to let you know that a system's compromised, but also, you know, they don't want to have, you know, hack systems running in their environment um, and, and deal with the, you know, potential repercussions of getting blacklisted by different services uh, for that reason. So, um, so they, they will detect uh, some of those things. But again, that, that's only going to be things that are happening um, as data is leaving your environment. So, so logging that they can see um, as network traffic is leaving out of the environment. Um, they shouldn't be able to see what, what is actually running in your EC2 instances. Uh, you know, they, they shouldn't be able to have access to memory dumps or anything like that. And, and you know, we think that you know that that's true just because there there have been a lot of times when customers have asked for memory dumps of their systems and AWS has responded that you know they're not capable of it you know or different cloud service providers say they, they can't do that that they have a lot of precautions in place um, and, and so that's what you know kind of gives us the confidence that that okay they, they really don't have access you know because in some cases it's uh, you know very large customers that have a lot of money and very big support contracts where you think that you know the cloud service Service providers would would be able to you know make some be able to go out of their way or, or change their rules a little bit for you know some of the large sums of money that you know some of these customers are are potentially willing to throw around and uh, in the cloud service provider still will not make any changes to that those policies. Okay. Are any CSPs uh, standing out that you I can think of that are doing a decent job of their responsibilities in helping you know, potential customers understand? where the lines of separation are in terms of the shared uh, responsibility model. I mean, I think all of the different uh, cloud service providers do have some types of documents that they provide. So, you know, AWS is the environment that I work with the most. And so, you know, I read through a lot of their documents and, and they have a document specifically about um, that, that shared responsibility model. And, and I imagine that the different clouds for uh, the other cloud service providers, um, such as Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud and some of the others, that they're also providing those as well. I see quite a bit of the documentation in that, but I'm just not sure how much of that's actually making it to the likes of the sea levels. Yeah, and it, I mean, it, it always becomes a frustration that there there potentially is a lot of this documentation out there, but you know it might be so overwhelming, or it might be you know kind of difficult to understand what are the right documents to read. A lot of uh, AWS's documentation for their different services ends up being, you know, hundreds of pages long. And so trying to find those nuggets of information that you're actually looking for in there can become difficult. Is it a better idea to actually build this stuff into the interface? Because people just generally only read docs if they have to, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but they have to use the UI and the APIs and that sort of thing. Um, potentially building uh, some information around this into those sort of interfaces. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, um, I mean, again, that that's going to be, you know, a, a difficult usability problem to try and to try and present the user with, you know, the things that they need to know, the things that, you know, they want to be able to do and learn and, and know about the product, uh, but not overwhelm them and not, you know, uh, make it just, you know, too difficult with too much text, too many buttons on there. You know, we've all seen those interfaces where it's just, you know, a, a you know, overwhelming to, to you, especially as a beginner um, user. But then, you know, as you become a power user, some of those environments, you know, might not offer enough of the buttons, enough of the text, you know, as, as you become more comfortable with those tools. So we're just going to move into a bit of a section on um, the differences between uh, cloud service providers and in-house. Um, 
So what are some of the aspects uh, that are more secure in the cloud than in-house? Can you think of any um, concrete examples? As we've, as we've mentioned, you know, taking care of a lot of the physical security, um, I, I think that the cloud service providers can do that a lot better than, than a lot of, uh, you know, um, you know, I guess, uh, private entities can, can accomplish that themselves. You know, it depends on, you know, what are the entities you're looking at? Are you looking at, you know, a mom and pop or, you know, just a, a brand new startup that, that only has a couple of employees? Or are you looking at, you know, potentially much larger, um, you know, company that, that has a much larger workforce and can accomplish those things, you know? So especially for, for, you know, the small startups, you know, that only have a few employees, you know, the cloud service providers are going to be able to accomplish a lot of these things a lot better than them, you know, specifically around things like, you know, having, you know, guards that are manning these uh, these centers 24-7 and having processes in place for all these different things, you know, they're going to be able to accomplish that a lot better. Uh, things like, you know, segmentation of duties, you know, if you only have, you know, a company of three people, there's not a whole lot of segmentation of duties that you can really accomplish there, you know, whereas, you know, once you have hundreds of employees, then you can start, you know, splitting up those responsibilities in different ways better. But we, we have heard, you know, that, that uh, some of these cloud service providers, you know, they, they do have, you know, since they are bigger companies, they've hired a lot of experts in different fields, and those experts have different, uh, you know, friends in different areas that, that are doing research and, and uh, you know, friends in governments and things like that, that, you know, potentially some of the cloud service providers are getting access to information about, uh, you know, things like vulnerabilities before potentially of the larger public is getting access to some of those things. Now, CSPs are tasked with uh, taking a cure of aspects such as uh, just general infrastructure, hardware, hosting, continuously hardening components and infrastructure, uh, patching uh, components only visible to the CSP, uh, network firewall routes and rules of the CSP's core infrastructure, network component logging, a network intrusion detection system, so, and regular penetration testing. Do those organizations contemplating in-house cloud solutions need to consider all of these aspects? I mean, they still should. They, they still should undergo things like, uh, you know, pen tests and things like that, um, just because you do need to expose uh, the different areas of of your responsibility uh, for security in those environments that, that aren't being handled by those different cloud service providers. So you should still have things like network intrusion detection. Um, and, and part of this is because, you know, the, the cloud service providers, uh, they, they might be accomplishing some of these things, they might be performing some of these things, but they might not be giving you that visibility and insight into what they're finding. Um, so, you know, they might have, you know, network intrusion detection of some sort, but it, it potentially is only going to be for their own systems and it's not going to be detecting things for your systems and they might have you know different uh, different levels in which they would uh, inform you about these so for example I mentioned earlier about how uh, you know they'll detect port scanning and be able to alert you about that well it depends on you know when they're going to be alerting you about that you know they, they might not they might take a while to alert you they might not they might only alert you when you know someone else on the internet complains about it um, they might not alert you as quickly uh, you know and they might not give you the specifics of the information that you need otherwise um, so it still is very important to do things like you know the monitoring to be able to do pen tests to be able to do things like that across your environment so how can we be better prepared for CSBs being forced to give up our and our customers' data to our governing authorities and others without our permission or even knowledge in many cases. Does this just come down to using more crypto or what else can we do? Yeah, so uh, I mean, there you do want to make sure 
depending on I guess you know your views of um, of different countries governments where your data is being held at and so you know you can ensure that that it's being used and, and uh, you know maintained only in specific um, countries locations so you can do that uh, but then additionally you know your, your other fallback is going to have to be on things like encryption um, to try and protect that uh, but again you know it'd be it's, it's a very hard problem to ensure that the data that you have you know on, on one of these cloud service providers, if you are keeping it in any type of unencrypted manner, because ultimately you want to be able to use that information there, to try and to try and ensure that it can't be, uh, you know, I guess uh, read by that cloud service provider in in any way, like it, it becomes a very hard problem. There's not really any good solutions to. So I'm just moving on to um, a couple of questions around some other risks. Um, CSPs provide many uh, security-enhancing services and features, um, most of which I see software developers and people above them in the uh, org chart I think of as inconveniences. How can we encourage our developers and others to use the security features uh, more security by default or any other ideas? I think I think one of the ways you know it, it always helps to be able to present people with different checklists and be able to you know give them scoring on how well they're doing in their environments and so there, there's become a number of tools that you can run they'll just do simple scans across your environment to look for certain you know whether or not certain security features have been enabled um, or whether or not there's been misconfigurations that have happened um, so for example you know it, it'll be able to detect you know which of your users have multi-factor authentication and Enabled for them, or whether or not you're using password complexity policies, um, you know, so it can it can make some of those checks for you, or whether or not you have logging turned on, for example, the CloudTrail logs, um, or some of the other logging options that exist for AWS. So, so that's. I think that that's one of the ways in which you can go about that is you know run one of these tools, see what you know your your output is from it, and then be able to prevent present that to potentially management or others to be able to show them like hey look at we were we have a score on here you know of of you know 15 out of 20 and if we want to get you know the full you know 100% for our score then we need to do these you know additional steps for ourselves any thoughts or security concerns around serverless technologies that look new or that as software engineers we need to be thinking about you know again there there still are the risks that you know behind the scenes it, it still is you know an operating system that that exists out there in the world that potentially has different types of vulnerabilities in it um, your software itself you know is going to still have different uh, vulnerabilities in it potentially and so so you still have to be you know mindful of these different things um, I think a lot of people just assume that you know as long as they're running it serverless that you know potentially it's going to run too quickly for for an attacker to be able to exploit um, you know because a lot of them can only run for maybe five minutes at a time uh, but you know, an attacker can still maintain persistence in different ways in those environments, and attackers are getting better about being able to automate their own tools so that they can accomplish things in an automated fashion without having to you know be hands-on keyboard as they're you know trying to attack different things. So, so I mean that that's just kind of the the biggest thing there is that that it it still is a lot of the same issues, but but it's just you know changing how how those things are. are going to get attacked in the future and how you know you can try and de- defend against these things i'm guess i'm i'm trying to dig for some examples um around some of the different serverless technologies and and what we need to be thinking about i mean can you think of any examples 
Yeah, so so I mean, there's like AWS has their Lambda service, um, which is going to be their their serverless technology there. And with Lambda, usually what you're going to do is you're going to assign what's called an IAM role to to those different um, functions that you that you've built up there. And those uh, IAM roles allow you to take actions in the AWS environment. For example, it might give them the ability to read from an S3 bucket. Um, it might give them you know some other types of uh, you know capabilities. And and with that IAM role, you can limit it down and you can restrict it to say only this one S3 bucket is the only one I want to be read from and potentially only within this directory within that S3 bucket. However, a lot of people might uh, you know, misconfigure that IAM role and just give it access to all of the S3 buckets. You know, it would just be easier for them to just say you know, uh, S3 star is the privilege that you give it. And so that gives it access to all the S3 buckets. You know, and that also gives them the ability to read, to write, you know, potentially delete information in there. And so that's uh, you know that that's one of the concerns there is if that serverless uh, function was exploited, then you know the attacker has those full privileges to to attack all of those different things. Additionally, a lot of your um, you know a lot of your serverless code is going to be like your other code that you have. In which case, you know you have different secrets in that code that you need to manage correctly. And so these secrets are going to be things like you know API keys or potentially passwords, things like that, to give them access to different databases or, or other services that exist out there. And and so you still need to be able to protect those different secrets, um, and so that you know because again if that if that technology was exploited in some way, uh, the attacker would have access to those secrets. Um, so you know you need to make sure that you're protecting those, that you're able to roll those quickly if they ever do get compromised. Um, so so those those become all the different uh, you know um, difficulties that you have. It's really a lot of the same ones, but it's just you know applied in a slightly different way. If you're a software engineer and you um. Are you working away at one of these serverless technologies or anything basically in the cloud? It's just like, right, let's get it working right and we'll work about the, we'll um, think about um, how we're going to secure it later. So a lot of the time these things actually get neglected and uh, they get left quite, uh, quite open. Exactly, and, and so that that becomes where it's important to audit, you know, what those different, you know, IAM policies that have been applied to these different resources are, and and using the CloudTrail logs that we mentioned earlier, you know, you can start using those logs um, additionally with with the policy that exists currently to understand what of the capabilities that resource has that it's actually using or not using, and therefore start, you know, trimming it down and restricting in different ways. So you know, by looking at the CloudTrail logs, you could see, oh, hey. It's, it's only ever using, you know, this one S3 bucket. Therefore, I should restrict it down to only accessing that one bucket and not give it access to all buckets. Can you think of any of the um, of the features that AWS, for example, um, provide to help us with um, secrets and um, storage of secrets? Yeah, so... Uh, so there is a service called KMS that, that AWS provides, which is a key management system. And there, there's been some open source projects that are built on top of that. For example, CredStash uses KMS. Uh, but then AWS also has, um, I think it's called SSM is the name of their service, um, which, is, which is essentially CredStash, but just kind of a, a managed version that AWS is providing to you. And so what these allow you to do is this allows you to, to when you give an IAM role to a different resource, for example, your Lambda, 
your your lambda function, what you can do is you can tell it, okay, you can access you know this key, this you know one secret, and so it can access that. But then your uh, your other functions cannot also access that same secret. So you can you can divvy this up and, and break it up into different ways so that some functions can access some secrets and some can access others. Um, and so that's that's really the the power that uh, one of the services that the different cloud providers can offer to you. Yeah, so it's 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 coming back to the least privileged concept and defense in depth, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, the, the biggest benefit of doing this type of thing is, is keeping those secrets outside of code, you know, where, you know, the code potentially could get leaked or the code at least, you know, you know, a lot of companies have just one single repo of code that they're that they're sharing across all of their developers. And so, you know, if you have 100 developers, all your 100 developers are going to have access to that code. And chances are, unfortunately, one of those developers is going to upload all that code to GitHub at some point, um, you know, or or you might have a contractor and you're going to end up, uh, you know, that they might do it uh, by accident or, you know, someone might get compromised, one of their laptops gets compromised, and now, you know, the attacker has access to that data there um, you know I, I think a lot of people don't realize that like especially source code ends up getting shared probably more widely um, than people expect it to you know anytime that you know you need to do any type of audit or something like that chances are you might end up having to share your source code with, with some other third party in some way and, and so you want to make sure those secrets are not being held in that source code as you potentially you know hand it off to somebody yeah, it's more a matter of uh, when rather than if, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so you created Flaws as a free online um, capture the flag tutorial to help uh, recognize common misconfigurations and gotchas in AWS. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, so so this was um, about a year ago that I created it, and um, it, it was really, uh, you know, I was I was running a company's um, security at the time. We had a DevOps guy, we had some developers, and I wanted to, you know, provide them some training on, you know, some of the potential gotchas in an AWS environment. Um, and so these were things like, you know, uh, S3 buckets that have been exposed or you know one thing that a lot of people aren't, aren't aware of is there there's kind of a, a magic IP address in um, the different cloud service providers uh, that's uh, 169.254.169.254 and if you can access that you can get credentials for that resource um, that can basically take over the IAM role of that service and, and so this has happened in the past where you know people would run some type of proxy service on on AWS and uh, it, it would end up someone would use that proxy service to access that magic IP address and get those credentials you know or in various other ways people have accessed that IP address and so that was another one of the levels and flaws um, and so this is what I wanted to do is just kind of show my own developers my own team you know what are some of the concerns that that we have um, and and you know I, I looked through um, Hacker One and, and other, uh, you know, repositories of you know bug bounties and things like that to try and try and identify you know different ways that companies have have either been hacked or you know had bug bounties awarded against them. Um, and so so looked up those things and basically built up kind of a, a game that had you actually perform those attacks. You could actually see what it looks like from the attacker's perspective and see honestly how easy some of these attacks are to perform when when things are misconfigured like 
like this. And so, so with that, was able to show you know my team what those different problems are, and included in there for every single level, basically gave you know hints along the way that describe you know how this is happening. And then at the end of the level, I basically say this is what the misconfiguration was. Here's some examples of you know companies that had this misconfiguration, um, and and you know be able to give that that information to people so they're they're better aware of those issues. And I figured as long as I was releasing it, you know, for my own my own team, I, I was able to do it in such a way that I could release it publicly to people so so others could play along with it. And so, so it's free at flaws.cloud. You know, you can access it, you can play it anytime um, and be able to go through. And if you don't want to actually be hands-on keyboard and actually perform the attacks yourself, you can just click through the hints and it'll, you know, be able to click through one level to the next level without actually having to do anything yourself. Um, and so, so it's been, you know, a lot of, I've received a lot of feedback from people both on Twitter and, you know, emails uh, where people, you know, said it's been useful, that they've trained, you know, their team with it, that, that it, you know, it might be college students or something that were learning AWS for the first time and and they've used that um, to try and learn some of the things about AWS before they started you know actually using the services so they were prepared for you know potential mistakes that they might make in that environment and so you know in, in the first um, in the first month like uh, 30,000 people had already visited the site and so it was it was way bigger than I ever expected like for something that is as niche as AWS security you know I, I didn't expect as much uh, you know positive uh, responses from people or as many people just seeing it as actually did yeah that's awesome hey how many levels does it have um, I think it's six levels. Uh, the first couple are going to be related to S3 buckets, and then um, and then it gets into some of the other different issues that can occur. Yeah, cool. Are you on the uh, Purple Squad uh, security podcast recently discussing uh, detecting intruders on AWS? Can you give us a bit of a rundown on what was discussed? Yeah, so so on that podcast, um, I discussed you know basically some of the different ways, uh, some of the different logs that exist on AWS, and you know some of the ways you can collect and, and, and monitor that information and what to look for you know more specifically in there. And, and really, it comes down to you know being able to look for access denied when when you have implemented these privileges across your environment. You know, one one of the things that I did with flaws was I, I was not only releasing it as kind of a tutorial to my own employees, but one of the reasons I released it publicly was I was using it more or less as like a honeypot to be able to see what does it look like when someone tries to attack an environment. Because in in flaws, what I'm doing is I'm giving I'm giving random people on the internet access keys to my AWS environment. So so they actually have you know credentials of some sort. They're very restricted, you know, so they they can't do anything that impacts the game. They're you know they're not able to run EC2 instances to mine Bitcoin or anything like that in my environment. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not being charged a bunch of money for it. But with it, uh, you know, I was able to look in the logs and, and see what are the types of different things that they're doing and, and you know, try and look for things of interest in there. Um, so, so one thing that, that I thought was, you know, somewhat interesting was, uh, was just that uh, of people that actually like played the game, hands on keyboard, actually, you know, were, were using the command line against it, there were about a thousand people that, that really, you know, were, weren't just, you know, clicking through the, the web tutorial, but were actually, you know, playing the game. And of those thousand people, there were about a thousand different user agents of their tools when they were hitting my services. And so I thought that was really interesting. So, so these aren't browser user agents, these are the command lines user agents. So it's going to be like AWS CLI, and it's going to give you the Linux version they're using, or if they happen to be on Windows or, or some other operating system. System. Um, so it's somewhat similar to your browser CLI, but it you know gives you the version of Python that's.
that's being used by the CLI and, and, and some things like that. And so I thought that was, you know, it, it's not really a good detection, but that was a thing of interest from the tool. I've also uh, leaked a number of keys onto services like GitHub and Pastebin, um, things like that, just to just to see like what what happens when an attacker tries to get access to those. Um, and in cases like that, you know, a lot of times they're using Tor or um, some other type of proxy in order to access uh, your you know your services. And so so that's the thing to look for is to see is someone using Tor with your access keys. Chances are your real developers and your real DevOps guys aren't using Tor when they're, you know, doing real work. Um, and so that that's a thing that you can look for. And in AWS actually just um, recently at their conference they released a new service called Guard Duty. And and so this service is it's just $4 a month, which is pretty cheap. Um, and that'll actually look for things such as um, service keys using uh, that that are being accessed from behind Tor nodes. Okay, cool. You also wrote an article recently on potential gaps in suggested Amazon Web Services uh, security policies for MFA. Uh, what goodness do you have to share with our listeners uh, from this? Yeah, so so this was I was working with a client, um, and so in this case it happened to be a Duo Security that I was working with, and so discovered kind of an issue with a policy that AWS had, and that they they had posted online that they had been advocating to to their customers for a while, and uh, this was a policy that was supposed to enforce multi-factor authentication on on the different users of an AWS environment, and so you know the thought was is that uh, you know you you turn on MFA, but um, AWS AWS doesn't actually enforce MFA when it's being used for access keys. Um, so even if you have an, uh, an MFA device, it, it's not actually going to require you to use that. And so what this policy does is it requires the user to actually use that. Um, and it was supposed to have some, some I guess, uh, gaps in it in order to allow you know a user to be able to change their password, be able to change their MFA device that they got a new one, um, and be able to do some things like that. And and so which is really useful for things like onboarding. You know you don't want to have to have you know one administrator you know helping people change their password every time they want to change it or anything like that. You know so it was supposed to help with that. Uh, but unfortunately it it had some. Uh, what can best be described as vulnerabilities in it. And so so what these would allow an attacker to do is if they did a compromise someone's access keys and those access keys were supposed to have this policy on it to, to require an MFA device, what the attacker could do is they could actually um, use one of the gaps in the policy to uh, remove the MFA device that currently exists by the user and add in the own um, an attacker's own MFA device and so they could add in their own MFA device now that the now that there is an MFA device associated with that customer um, the attacker can can then make use of whatever other privileges they had because then they can just you know punch in the uh, the code for that MFA device because the attacker owns that MFA device now um, so that that was really the big thing was it was allowing you to just completely bypass their multi-factor authentication policy and, and this had escaped you know a lot of people over the years you know, and, and AWS themselves had, had put up that policy. And so, so what, what I was able to do with my client was, you know, work with the AWS security team in order to get it fixed. And they sent out emails to their different customers to inform their customers, you know, that this, this change had been made to, to make them aware um, of these problems that, is, that had existed with it. Um, so that was, that was an interesting experience. And we ended up putting up a blog post about that afterwards. Yeah, nice. I've got links to all these in the show notes as well. I know of and um, have documented um, a little bit uh, 
uh, Security Monkey in the cloud chapter of my uh, second book. Uh, for the listeners, can you talk a bit about um, Security Monkey and also uh, Airbnb's uh, Stream Alert? Yeah, so so these are these are two pretty separate um, tools that are that are each helping you mostly with uh, your AWS environment. So so Security Monkey nowadays also works with Google Cloud in order to be able to detect issues with that, and and I think they're they're also trying to expand it to to misconfigurations beyond just uh, cloud service offerings, but also things like uh, um, like if you have a GitHub enterprise um, that that are they're also putting in some checks there in order to be able to detect misconfigurations there. But but what uh, Security Monkey does. Is, is this was a tool released by Netflix um, a number of years ago, and, and a lot of a lot of people that do DevOps work might be familiar with things like Chaos Monkey, um, which was another Netflix uh, tool which would go ahead and uh, kill different instances to ensure that you had that availability that things would restart, um, you know, automatically for you. But what Security Monkey does is this is another project of theirs, and, and it will actually go ahead and check different AWS environments that you have, and it'll look for things like exposed S3 buckets or IAM policies that that are uh, very permissive and, and allow a lot of things or um, access keys that haven't been rolled in over 90 days or you know all sorts of different checks. I, you know, I, I think at this point, I, I imagine there's at least dozens of checks in there. You know, if, if not a hundred checks, there, there's tons of different things that, that, and they're adding to it all the time. Um, so it's a very active project still. And, and what this does is it, it's running continuously, and so every single hour, it's making these checks. And um, it can email you when it finds new things, and it can show you a diff. Um, it can also, you know, be able to show you all of the currently open issues that that haven't been justified yet. Uh, but so that. That's the other thing that it does. It provides you a whole web UI that you can log into. You can uh, search through and find all these issues, and you can go ahead and justify them. And it does, you know, allow some role-based access control where you could have some people that only have viewing permissions, and some people that have the ability to comment on issues, and some people that have the ability to actually justify those issues and close them out. Um, and so that's that's a great tool that, that's been around for a while and, and is phenomenal for being able to detect all sorts of issues in an environment. And so there are some other tools that are more geared towards, you know, pen testers that are going to be like a one-time scan. And so this would be a tool like a Prowler is an example of that. Um, and, and it just will do a one-time scan and it'll give you, you know, that report. Whereas what Security Monkey is doing is it's just continuously uh, running in your environment and being able to detect things. Um, and so that's a great tool. And then uh, Stream Alert, uh, what it does is it's it's monitoring your logs and it... Uh, I, I've used it primarily for things like monitoring CloudTrail logs, uh, but it can be used against any type of logging service. And so, you know, Airbnb, they were they built it originally, you know, for their web server logs and, and just all the logs that they had coming in. And StreamAlert is is very focused on AWS. And so it's using Kinesis and it's using some uh, Lambdas, you know, and, and some other services of AWS. And so it very much ties you into that environment. Um, so you're not going to want to use StreamAlert for uh, you know, Microsoft Azure or Google Cloud or anything like that. Um, so, so it ties you into that environment. But because it's you know serverless and it's, it's taking advantage of the things that AWS is providing, um, it's able to work as basically a sim that that just scales uh, infinitely for you, and you don't have to you know manage it. You don't have to try and um, keep up with it too much. There's a little bit of care and feeding that you might have to do, especially as you start you know using it more aggressively and more heavily. Uh, but it's very hands off, and and it's able to work very quickly on things as well. Um, and so that that's a great tool, and that's all uh, basically all of your 
alerts or, or detections for things is all it all exists as code that you check into you know your own uh, git repo and so so with that you know you're able to have a history of you know why you why you created this rule and exactly what that rule is and any comments that you want to include in that and who ch who created that rule and so it's a great tool from that perspective and that and that's really moving you in the direction of 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 using you know, basically get to maintain your whole detections and monitoring and alerting framework. Um, and, and that has a lot of benefits to it. And, and so that's a great example of a tool that allows you to do that. Cool. Uh, do you have any interesting personal projects or events uh, that you've got on the go currently, Scott? Um, I do actually for for a client right now. I'm working on a tool to visualize AWS environments. And so, so this would be a tool that would uh, allow you to basically see the different EC2 instances and what uh, security groups, um, what what network accesses are available between security groups. And so this is a project that um, we'll be open sourcing here pretty soon because I'm doing a collaboration with a client. Um, and so, so that's going to be awesome. And it, it, you know, we have plans of, of taking it a step further in the future because there are some tools that exist out there on the market that are commercial tools that allow you to visualize things like this. Uh, but we have plans to also take it and be able to visualize some of your IAM uh, permissions that you have. So, so as we mentioned earlier about lambdas that have access to all of your S3 buckets, even though you might have the expectation that it only has access to you know one or two buckets, uh, this tool will be able to help you visualize and see that. And I, I think you know. We we've already discovered, you know, as we've been using the tool, you know, it's it's really helped us understand the environment um, of my client a lot better because now they now it's not only as code, it's not just a web UI, you know, that they're clicking around in the AWS console and they're trying to read text in order to understand their environment. Now it's actually visually representing it for them. Yeah, so so when's that going to be uh, open source, Scott? That that should be in the next, uh, hopefully, few weeks. We'll we'll see how you know we still have to try and uh, test it out and make sure it's it's ready for a more public audience. But but I would imagine so probably sometime in January. Cool. So so due to time shifting, we may or may not get that link into the show notes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So so uh, what have we uh, not discussed that we really should have discussed? Can you think of anything? Um. No, I'm good. Scott, thanks for uh, joining us today. It's been um, educational and fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been great. For Software Engineering Radio, this was Kim Carter. Listen up, software engineers. When was the last time you proposed a product change that was really listened to? How often does your code shift to production? Same day, within minutes? When was the last time you actually wanted to go to work? At Ultimate Software, this could be your new normal. And with offices in Florida, Georgia, and California, what are you waiting for? Visit ultimatesoftware.com slash careers today and start making a difference tomorrow. Ultimate Software. People first. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at sc-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.